Hi, everyone, and welcome to First State Insights, a podcast presented by the University of Delaware's Institute for Public Administration. We call ourselves IPA for short. My name is Troy Mix. I'm Associate Director at IPA and your host for this episode. This episode continues a series of conversations on the future of remote work and what it might mean for businesses, communities, and policymakers in Delaware and beyond. My guest is Dr. Rick Cotton, who is Associate Professor of Talent Management and Sustainable Innovation at the University of Victoria, British Columbia. His primary research interests include career success, developmental networks, talent management, cross-cultural management, and leadership. I spoke with Rick on December 10th, 2021, about what he terms the Great Reckoning, with employees and employers navigating the disruption of the pandemic and finding their way toward models of work that breed successful careers and productive organizations. Let's get to the conversation. Good morning, Rick. Thanks for joining me today. Happy to be here, Troy. So I wanted to get started kind of getting to know you a little bit and relative to the topic we're going to talk about. And I wonder if it's kind of fair to think of you as kind of a scholar of career success. Well, scholar is an awfully strong word, but I would say I would say yes in general. I study careers primarily and also dabble in talent management and HR. And I was a practitioner for a long time, actually, before I became a professor. And what what's that practice look like? How would organizations relate to you? I was a change management consultant for Accenture for a long time, working on organizational transformation, working with HR departments on org change. And then also I was a senior vice president in HR in the learning and development arena for a financial services company. And kind of as I sit here talking to you in my attic and you know think about how much time I've spent here over the last two years and read about the great resignation and read about, you call it kind of the job reckoning. How do you think about this, both kind of with your scholar hat on and in the practice, like working with organizations, how do you, what's your map for thinking through great resignation, however you want to label it? We start with the big picture. I would say, first of all, a scholar pandemics I spoke to, he said, after any pandemic, 80% of life is going to be roughly the same and about 20% will be changed. The big issue is which 20%? So the challenge here is a lot of this I, I've used really affecting work very directly, very directly, the labor force for employers, workers, et cetera. So there's a lot going on in terms of navigating the great reckoning. I think there are two different angles, and I like to take both because as a career scholar, you focus on individuals, organizations, whole societies as well. So all different angles. But I would say from the worker standpoint is really where it originated, the great reckoning and the idea that you're focused on the pandemic has exacerbated some trends. It's made you think about your life, particularly work-life balance, what's meaningful to you and what you'd like to do with the rest of your career, if you will. And then from employers, the great reckoning, I would say, is more along the lines of how do we attract and retain the right workers for us, which is a big challenge. And it depends on what we're talking about in terms of, are we talking about frontline workers, healthcare workers, remote workers, people who've been unemployed or furloughed, They all each have their own challenges when it comes to the great reckoning. But that's how I think of it from actually both a practice and a scholarly standpoint. And yeah, let's break it down a little bit. I mean, so it was starting from the attic folks like me who I'm not remote technically, I'm hybrid, but you know, there's a lot that may become remote. I am in the type of job where I could be increasingly remote in years to come if if that kind of is what my organization chooses and what works for me. How do you think of that? class of workers, however you might define it, what are their 
the questions in their mind? And then what are organizations doing to figure out what's going to work for that type of worker moving forward? I would say, first of all, remote workers and hybrid, I view them in the same category. There's going to be a lot of shifting back and forth as things go on as a pandemic waxes and wanes as life returns to quote unquote normal, however much that happens. But I would say in terms of main challenges that those workers face, it really is the disruption. Disruption is a key word of our time in terms of how much time should I be spending at work if I have a choice? How much time should I be spending at home? What's the right mix of doing that for work-life balance? And actually, we've done some research that focuses on really across 30 countries, seven different career success measures that matter across all countries, including blue and white-collar workers, white-collar workers. But basically, for a worker, you really have to figure out, how do I get the right amount of face time, the right amount of interaction? All of us bring human capital, social capital, even what we call positive psychological capital, form of hope, confidence, resilience, self-efficacy to work. All those things come to bear. Of course, social capital has really taken a beating for remote workers and for hybrid workers working at home with that lack of interaction because the technology is ahead of where we are socially in terms of norms. You can't just have that easy hallway conversation through Zoom, right? So that, that's something that's lost to organizations and lost to individuals in many ways. For employers, figuring out navigating this remote hybrid is going to be, I think, a lot coming down. Believe it or not, there's a lot of research that says the opt, going back to the 1990s, that says the optimum mix for these type of workers, which are managerial, technical, professional, or tend to be when they work at home, three days at work, two days at home, or vice versa, three days at home, two days at work is the optimal mix. The challenge there, again, is for employers, who's in the office when and what do I have them doing? So how do we take advantage of brainstorming? How do we take advantage to build trust? How do we take advantage to build social capital and to build team cohesion and social cohesion? So really picking when that happens. And then another big thing is the fact that, especially for new workers, a lot of industries have a lot of turnover, is the fact that to build trust, it really has to start face-to-face. If you have new employees who start remotely, it's a much different relationship because it's much easier to sever that relationship actually on both sides because you don't have the depth of social connection that you normally would do with workers who are there full-time face-to-face. But I think there's a happy medium that's going to work and it's going to open up a lot of possibilities for workers and, and employers in terms of where they get their talent from. So for these hybrid remote workers, you can open up to a much wider talent pool potentially around the world even and then be able to figure out, well, how do you optimize that employer-employee relationship to make it work for both sides? And then for workers, you can actually, you know, inflation is the word of the day, right? 60-year high today in the U.S. But if you can find a lower cost of living place to live and have a great job where you're getting good pay, you actually have the chance to build a good life for you and your family. Yeah, I want to dive into a couple of things there that you said. First of all, you said the 1990s. So was that research that came out of the 90s, that three days work in the in the office, two days at home made sense for a lot of folks in this class of workers? Yeah, it came out of the 90s because 90s was the, you know, the dot-com boom was the end of the 90s. There was a lot of talk about job sharing. There was, you know, still some issues with the workforce in terms of finding the optimal mix of people, the right technology workers. There was a real dearth of workers in that area. So there were a lot of things going on during the 1990s that made employers in a different way really consider how they can maximize worker productivity in different ways. And that's how it came up and find the right skills, the workforce. They had to be open to looking at different workers from different places with different requirements. 
what happened, I guess. I mean, we had the dot-com bust, but what happened in terms of uh, not making that a reality that we just kind of slipped into it once the pandemic occurred? Exactly. Inertia is a very powerful thing, a very powerful thing. And FaceTime is very strong and very important to organizations. So those organizations, many of whom, it's almost like uh, offshoring or, you know, outsourcing in some ways. You know, you try it, you do it in some some organizations and brought those functions back in again because they found it didn't work for them from a trust, from an oversight, from a relationship standpoint. So that's really what it was, is, is employers tried it, they dabbled with it, and many of them didn't find the benefit to them. I think partly it was a comfort level with employees being there in the office. We see some of that today as well, that employers really, you know, they could be jumping more on this bandwagon of getting a much wider workforce that would alleviate some of these recruiting and retention issues, but they're not quite there yet, many of them. And I'm struggling not to ask you for consulting advice for the organization I work for, Rick. <laughs> so apologize if I dabble in that a little bit here, but you know, we're back into like, okay, we're going to mix people working from home, working in the office. There's not a clear rhyme or reason as to who's there when to do what. We've onboarded one new employee who is in person with their close teammates more often, kind of intentionally, and we're about to onboard another. So we feel like we have learned some of the things that you said, that that's valuable to do some of those things in person, build trust. But we're still a long way from figuring out what that right mix is, uh, who's there when, et cetera, and what we do. Do you have suggestions on where to look, how to figure it out? <laughs> I know that might be organization to organization, but how how are people grappling with this or how should they grapple with it? Well, first of all, you're, you're not alone by any means. Uh, all organizations of different sizes, different industries, different occupations are all struggling with this idea. I would say fundamentally look at what you do and what what is really the value of getting people together. So when do you need to have people in the same room at the same time? Not every meeting is the same. Not every meeting requires brainstorming, collaboration, true agreement on key decisions, things like that. Sometimes they're more checkup meetings, things like that. So some of those things you can do over Zoom, but I'd really think about as an organization, when is it most important? When do you have the biggest you know, bang for the buck, if you will, of getting people together in the room? And then there's a lot of ancillary benefits, as I mentioned, in terms of trust, relationship building, social cohesion. Think about when that's necessary. And I think you're ahead of the game by doing your onboarding in person and setting up that initial time where the person really gets to know the organization. Here at the university, we see a huge difference in terms of teaching in person versus remotely. And there's, as we know from remote work, humans are social beings. So mental health challenges exploded during the pandemic. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that people aren't connected. They feel disconnected. They don't feel the support. They're not sure if they're part of something bigger than themselves. So I think it comes down to what I'd say fundamentally, think about what your organization does when you, you need to bring people together and then trying to make that happen. That's going to involve some negotiation in terms of, like you said, well, not everybody's in at the same time or we don't know who's in when, right? So it's going to have to be a little bit more closer discussion and decision-making around when is the optimal time to bring people together and when is it okay for them, frankly, to work remotely? And I think you will find a sweet spot where you can look at that work and figure out what can be done remotely, and that'll be good for workers, the work-life balance, what can be done together, and that'll be good for both the workers and the organization. And, you know, you've called it kind of the great reckoning. I said the great resignation. Mm -hmm. How, I mean, 
organizations, I think, are beginning to realize that people are becoming curious about other opportunities, <laughs> so much so that they might resign even before they have another position. And I guess what are the tools that employers might consider kind of empowering their folks to consider those options, even though that's a scary thing for a lot of organizations? Well, I would say first and foremost, as an organization, you know, you spend 75 to 150% of a person's annual pay to refill that position. So if you lose a person, you actually have a lot, you have disruption costs, customer relationships, you have to, you have a hiring panel, you have to go out and recruit, you have to interview people, you have to onboard people, et cetera. So the key thing I would say for employers is rather than helping people to explore opportunities, focus on keeping the people you work so hard to get, get in the organization to start with. So focus on retention. And the, the key word there is really focus on communication. And there's a great tool. There are lots of tools here that I can offer up. One of them is what's called the stay interview. So stay interview as opposed to an exit interview. An exit interview, you do actually, it's too late. The employee is leaving or they've left basically. And you follow up and you try to get some insights. And by and large, people don't want to burn bridges. So they're not particularly honest in exit interviews. But a stay interview involves saying, who's most important to me to keep in this organization from a job performance, from a customer interaction? Even from an energy standpoint, in terms of who really attracts energy, who really inspires people, who do you want to hold on to? And then for those employees, have the manager go to them and say simply, you know, be observant and say, you know, I'm noticing you don't seem as engaged as you were. These are good signs that some might be thinking of leaving. You might, uh, you don't seem as engaged. You don't seem as uh, vocal in meetings. Tell me about that. What's going on for you? And ask them, are you as excited to be here as you were when you first joined the organization? And these are open-ended questions. That's important. Let the employee respond, uh, see where they are, and, figure, and then be willing to say and do as a manager, what can I do to help? The old saw that people join organizations and people leave managers is still generally true. But during the pandemic, it's more people are leaving organizations and sometimes leaving occupations as well. But having a strong relationship and strong communication where you know where your employees are and you're getting feedback from them and you're making adjustments is really important. And it's not all on the employer. Have you heard of uh, the idea of job crafting? So we all have our job description, right? It's a pretty standard set of things that we do, but there's a lot of fiddling around the edges that both sides can do, managers and workers, to make things better. So job crafting, there are multiple different types of it, but basically as a worker saying, what do I really, what do I want to learn? That's developmental crafting. What relationships do, do I want to have more of? Who are people I enjoy working with? Can I do more of that? What are tasks that I enjoy doing more than others? Can I do more of those tasks versus others? So these are just some examples. Environmental crafting, where do I work best? Maybe I, part of my job involves writing, so working at home where it's quiet, that's great. That's perfect for me. When I want to meet and socialize with people, when's the best time to do that? So that's environmental crafting. The other crafting is really more of a cognitive crafting, reframing what the worker does, because it's easy to lose track. Many workers were out of sight, out of mind, and are during the pandemic. So reframing, why is this job important? Why does it matter? What are we really doing here as an organization is important? So crafting is something that actually employees can initiate and say, I'd like to do more of this. You'd get more out of me if I could do this. Here are the things I want to learn, and then work with the employer. And of course, you can't have people just doing whatever they want all the time, but you can direct that in line with your strategy, in line with what your organization is trying to do from a goal standpoint to make that work. So those are a couple of tools that are really useful to keeping people around. So that's the first step. 
In terms of workers looking for jobs, I would say it's more of an individual venture. As an employer, you want to hold on to good employees, right? So we don't want those to go. If it's an employee that's not particularly valuable to you, then you might be okay with them exploring options. For employees, I would say there's a great concept in Japanese called ikigai. And what it basically says is for workers, look for the intersection of what you're great at, what you'd love to do, what you could get paid an adequate wage for, and what the world or at least some customers need. And oftentimes, if we think about the jobs we've had, they don't often meet all four. So let's say we're doing something we love. We love the arts. We love music, but we're not getting paid an adequate wage. So then we have to wait tables or do something else to supplement that income. So really think about the intersection of those four things. And that really is a sweet spot for workers. So as you consider employment options, I think that's a really great way to go. Think about what you're missing. Think about skills that you want to do more of, things that you love, things that you're great at. Because this age of really, some people call it the fourth industrial revolution, is really about maximizing what technology does well and what people do well. And that involves all of us understanding our strengths and taking advantage of our passions. And to your earlier point, I mean, I imagine there's opportunity to look at those four elements and where they intersect. Organizations can encourage that in terms of job crafting and helping people to get the most out of themselves in their current position, right? Absolutely. Yeah, what they love, right? So figure out what is the intersection where the employer-employee agree, what they're really good at, what they really are passionate about doing, and try to find that intersection. And then in terms of pay, that there can be modifications to total rewards to figure out how people get adequate pay, get more pay, maybe a higher percent of at-risk pay through bonuses or even non-financial rewards to supplement what they're getting financially. I want to shift. I mean, we talked, started with kind of remote workers, the people who are able to do that, which you said are kind of managerial or technical professional in most cases, to folks who may not have seen a whole lot of more opportunity or society might not think of them as having been presented with a lot more opportunities, but a lot of burdens, a lot of negative impacts, kind of essential workers and folks who lost their jobs during the pandemic. And I, I guess for essential workers, what do you see as, what's the reckoning involved there? Great question. For essential workers, and my son worked at a grocery store to some extent, this involves grocery workers, uh, ambulance, fire, police, healthcare of all kinds, really. They really had to consider their jobs. My, my wife works in healthcare. So a lot of people got reassigned. If you were doing voluntary surgeries, you got you know redeployed to giving vaccines or doing testing or doing contact tracing. So I think for people in frontline positions, you really have to think the cost benefit of that position. How likely is it that this is going to be a long-term condition with COVID? You know, some people say COVID is a bump in the road. Other people say COVID is the road, right? So we have to figure out what is it going to look like longer term. But for healthcare workers, frontline workers of all kinds, really thinking of the cost benefit in terms of what, you, what you're getting out of the job and it might actually you know, enhance your passion even more dealing with these types of difficult crisis situations, recognizing the value that you really add. For other people, they're more scared. It's more difficult. People don't want to argue with individuals about vaccine passports, about wearing their masks in the store or dealing with plexiglass. Some, some frontline workers really love customer interaction. And think of what's happened. We have a lot more, especially in, in retail food services, hospitality, those sectors have been hit really hard in terms of the pandemic and employment. But those jobs, you don't have the pleasure of the customer interaction. A lot of it is, you know, remote ordering. Starbucks is not the chatty Italian cafe it was meant to be. 
right? With so many people getting remote orders. So we have to really think about, uh, and I, I mentioned those seven key indicators of career success that people are looking for. One of them is positive work relationships. One of them is positive impact, financial security, financial success, which are two different things. Entrepreneurship, believe it or not, so the ability to be creative, to come up with new ideas, whether it's entrepreneurship or entrepreneurship, learning and development, and work-life balance. Uh, those And uh, positive impact overall too, right? So all those all those matter. Those seven matter. We found that in 30 countries around the world, blue collar, white collar. And it matters to, of course, healthcare workers, remote workers. For those who've been furloughed or laid off, a lot of times employers did the best they could. So they actually furloughed employees under the guise that we'll bring you back. But a lot of times it was out of sight and out of mind. So we had people who were didn't feel part of the organization, weren't sure when they would come back, weren't getting a lot of communication or training from their employer. So they weren't sure exactly what would happen. And they started to look at other opportunities, started to consider other options. So I think in some cases, employers had the best and best of intentions, but for workers, they weren't feeling the love in a lot of ways and then started to consider other things. And those who are underemployed or unemployed, I'm hoping that as a result of the pandemic dealing with recruitment and retention issues, that we actually open up ourselves to broader recruiting profiles. And this is going to involve, this can really allow you to take advantage of unique workforce. There's a an organization called the Empowerment Plan, Empowerment Plan in Detroit, and their workforce is really homeless women primarily. And what they've done, they're a very loyal workforce. They come in, they do a great job. They're very motivated. They've had trouble finding work elsewhere. And what they do is they actually spend 70% of their work week doing work. And this is actually building a really fascinating coat that helps people who are homeless who can actually uh, use the coat as a sleeping bag, pack it up easily, travel with it. So it really provides, you know, some comfort out there in very difficult conditions. But the other 30% is spent on programs, uh, substance abuse, dealing with violence prevention, dealing with uh, financial management, all kinds of things. So as we think about really what our employees need, there's the opportunity to broaden what we're looking at. I work with some organizations. I'm working with a, a government entity focused on prisons. It's very hard to get good correctional officers. And as we interviewed people and visited the sites, we realized that the same skills that you need as a parent are similar skills that you need as a correctional officer. But they weren't looking at single parents. They weren't looking at people that had a debt with these complex cases. So in prison, you have people who are have mental health issues, abuse issues, homeless issues, dependency issues, all this kind of thing. But dealing with that effectively is really important. And oftentimes you're dealing with a very difficult situation where you've got multiple people to manage. So broadening that, you don't think of the correctional officer, good communicating correctional officer as someone who really comes from a single parent background, but it is a valuable recruitment profile that they can focus on going forward. So that's what I mean about broadening where you look for employees. And then diversity is a way out of this whole thing. It really is. Opening yourselves up to more diverse workforce, diversity, equity, inclusion are all the rage these days and very important. So opening yourself up to people who have a broader set of skills, maybe a different background than you normally hire from, but you can get a big benefit, especially everybody's fighting for these workers, right? Unemployment rate is low. It's so many businesses with signs in their windows wanting to hire people. So you're going to have to come up with total rewards that attract people and an organizational opportunity that really keeps people. Yeah, so you hit on kind of the market factors there that might give folks some hope that this is a time when we focus a little more on the difficult jobs to recruit for and the difficult populations to employ. 
Are there other factors? I mean, thinking about kind of recovery and big investments, period. Is, is that something that gives you hope that there's opportunity for programs around, you know, again, these difficult populations and the difficult jobs? Absolutely. So some of the big investments going on in the U.S. and Canada, even just COVID payments gave people the opportunity to consider the great reckoning, right? They had some extra income. They could retire early. They could recognize the importance of being with their family versus working. Do we need really need two paychecks coming in for a couple and a family? So those things are investments in yourself. Partially people saying, you know, the restaurant industry is really difficult. What about online uh, security? What about online coding? What about website development? You know, people started to focus on different things. It could be a more valuable long-term career for them in terms of the things that we mentioned in terms of Ikigai. But in terms of investments on the broad public level, I think it's really thinking about what are the jobs of the future and what are the jobs of now where we need investment, right? There's there's no doubt that we need to do something. I don't mean to get political. I think there's there's little doubt that there's a need to focus on climate change, what we could do, but things like alternative energy, uh, getting into other sectors, everybody basically agrees those are key growth areas and we could facilitate training, we could facilitate incentives for employers to move in that direction. That's just one example. As I said, with technology, technology does great with repetitive work, with work that's fine-tuned, needs to be precision, uh, needs to be the same every time. It's not good at curing cancer. It's not good at starting a new business. It's not good at creative opportunities. Those are things that people can pursue. So we really, really need to figure out how do we get the most out of people? How do we help people to get the most out of themselves? And that involves, I think, targeted focus on technology to get away from these, you know, boring, repetitive jobs, sometimes, you know, repetitive stress jobs on people and try to get them towards something that's more aligned with what people really do well. But some of the investments I think is helping people to understand what their strengths are and to understand how they can apply that to other jobs, industries, growth sectors going forward. And if you're open to it, I wonder if we could focus in on you a little personally in terms of how you might use some of these tools, generally speaking, but over the last two years to kind of think about maybe recalibrate the rewards you get from your job, navigate the pandemic with your career in mind. How do you put some of this in action in your own life, in your own career? That's a really great question. Wow. I would start with by saying that as, as we think about the seven areas of career success that I went over, they're not surprising in some ways, but the fact that everybody's dealing with all of them all the time, it's just the importance that varies depending on career stage, depending on life stage. I think that's important. So for example, when I say the pandemic exacerbated some of these things, we were having lower workforce participation in the US and Canada before the pandemic. We were having people take longer to get through college during the pandemic, college loans uh, costs, particularly in the U.S., were increasing during that time. So that that actually shifted workers' mindsets to say financial security actually matters. So how many loans I have over how long a period, I'm going to factor that into my educational decision. I'm going to factor that into where I live and things like that. So these things mattered, and now we can look at them even more. In terms of my own life, it made me think about, at the age that I am, thinking a little bit more about retirement. We're very fortunate in Canada that uh, we have a pensions, pretty strong pension system. I do have a pension plan here, but think about supplementary income when it gets to retirement. You know, the hustle is key in the U.S. in terms of what are some other top line revenue generating sources you can take advantage of. For me, it might be a book or a class at another university or creating a hybrid course. These are all things that I've considered pursuing, even starting a business as an offshoot of what I'm doing. So these are things to consider. That's just a financial security standpoint. In terms of 
positive impact, positive relationships, I really try to say, I tend to say yes to a lot of things because I'm very curious. So I've got a lot of different projects I'm involved in, but I really try to narrow it down to say, is this a passion project? Is this a legacy project? And try to have that be a screen on the project up front because it's just too easy to say yes and time is at a premium. So those are just a couple examples. And entrepreneurship, of course, is there. Learning development, really focusing on what I want to learn from a methodological standpoint as a professor. Also, different ways to do things in the classroom. So it's affected, I think, in subtle ways, everything that I focus on. I think really it's, and probably you may have faced this as well, really trying to figure out when do I want to be at home? When do I really need to be in the office? How do I balance that? Why do I want to go to the office? What am I going to do when I'm in the office to take advantage of those relationships as well as when I'm at home? What's the best time to be at home? How can I manage my workload accordingly? Being a professor, we're lucky because we have a lot of autonomy. So that creates a lot of opportunity. But I think a lot of workers considering these different factors is important and then figuring out how you can make even slight adjustments can make a big difference in terms of your overall mental health and work-life balance, productivity, et cetera. This was kind of the conversation I needed today personally. And, you know, it's valuable for organizations I know like mine, but I'm sure a lot of other folks out there and organizations out there. So I really appreciate your time today and diving deep on the subject. Thanks so much. Yeah, absolutely. There are lots of solutions, lots of ways to go for both workers and employers as well. Check the show notes for links to Dr. Cotton's faculty profile and relevant examples of his research. For more episodes on the future of remote work, consult the show notes for a link to a playlist for the series, or explore all our episodes by searching for First Aid Insights on your podcast platform of choice. For more information on the Institute for Public Administration, visit ipa.udel.edu. Thanks for listening today. Subscribe to First Aid Insights and tune in again soon. Take care.